You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Barney. And I'm Biggs. On this episode, we are doing a special double feature presentation of Alien from 1979 and its sequel, Aliens from 1986. These have to be like the most accurately titled movies of all time, right? I mean, they tell you exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get an alien in the first one, (laughs) and then you're going to get several of them in the sequel. There was no nonsense there. Now, Alien was directed by Ridley Scott. It was written by Dan O'Bannon, who wrote and directed one of my favorite movies of all time, Return of the Living Dead. Mm. I guess there, apparently there were other people involved in the writing, but he got the, the writer's credit. And a third person that we have to talk about, we have to credit for this movie, is Swiss artist H.R. Giger, whose work inspired O'Bannon to write the story in the first place, apparently. And then he was brought on to work on the film. And there's a great, I saw a great documentary on YouTube about his work on this movie. You get to see him working on the paintings and the sets and stuff. It's very cool. Dan O'Bannon introduced Scott to Giger's work. And when he was looking through the Necronomicon, which is a big book of Giger's artwork, and saw the alien, the alien xenomorph in this movie was created by H.R. Giger before the movie was ever made. And Ridley Scott saw it in this book. He's like, there we go. That's it. That's our alien. Mm. Now, Giger wanted to do more. He wanted to work on it more. But Ridley Scott convinced him to stick with the original design. Number one, because it was it was perfect. And also because there was a ton of other stuff Giger had to work on. The face huggers, the alien ship. Now, I guess Fox was not, they were not fans of Giger's work. They thought it was weird and sexual and gross. It kind of is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's why it's that's why it's so great. <laughs> you make it sound like it's a bad thing. I think it's pretty safe to say that this movie would not have become the iconic classic that it is without his influence. Now, despite the fact that Alien was a success, it did well financially, it received several Academy Award nominations, Ridley Scott was not asked back by 20th Century Century Fox to do the sequel. He was talking about it in The Hollywood Reporter. He said, I was never asked to do the sequel, maybe because I was such a tough guy when I was doing it, they didn't want me back. But I was also in the habit of not wanting to do a sequel either, so I never would have done it. Then he also said in another interview, I guess, that he was really pissed off about not being asked to do the sequel. And, you know, he certainly seems to be trying to reclaim this franchise because he's put out, what is it, two Alien movies? Uh, Prometheus, which was a prequel, and Alien Covenant, which I believe is also, wait, is that a sequel? No, I think it's a pre- I can't even keep them straight. I don't even know. <laughs> there are technically other movies in the alien universe but these are the two that we are talking about today because they are by far the best really the only ones you have to worry about aliens was written and directed by james cameron who was hot off the success of the terminator in 1984 and he did with this movie what he did uh, a few years later with the sequel to terminator and that is create a follow-up a second part of the story that keeps the core the heart of what made the original so great but raises all the stakes, right? He keeps the spirit uh, of that original movie. With this, he keeps that core of 
of tension and dread in Aliens, even though it's a far more action-y movie. It's much more of an action movie. The original is is a horror movie, kind of a slow burn horror movie, and this is more of an action movie, Aliens. And what's really cool is, unlike the crew in the first movie, these are not just regular unarmed people. These are these badass, highly trained, heavily armed Marines who shouldn't be scared of anything, and yet he keeps up that tension and keeps it scary, which is really impressive. It is, and I love the fact that it almost was some wish fulfillment. In the first movie, you know, you had this one solitary alien that was frightening and physically imposing, but didn't seem insurmountable, right? If it bleeds, we can kill it, as we learned in Predator. And so it was so fun to imagine what if, you know, big brawny Marines with guns came in, and then, of course... James Cameron, up the stakes for them. Yeah, he really did. And these feel like two halves, two different but super complementary halves of one story. Let's start by, let's talk about Alien first and how it's, I mean, right from, I mean, from the jump, from from the very beginning of this movie, it's it creates this, this atmosphere that just feels different than other sci-fi that we had seen at the time. Let's start with the set design and the special effects. It is absolutely brilliant. Everything is super lived in. Everything, kind of like Star Wars, which apparently was one of the inspirations for this movie. Everything's sort of clunky, dirty, used in a good way. Everything feels functional. And for me, part of the difficulty in conveying the future is if you try to show too much, then it gets dated. But if you keep it a little bit less is more, then I think you can you can sort of fill in some blanks. But it, it has to, you have to admit, it feels a little bit like an alternate future. There are different types of technology that we don't see. And there's that kind of funny disagreement where we have computers that have these little tiny screens and fill a whole room but they can still do a lot more so it's a little interesting but it's beautiful when the ship in fact starts waking up at the very beginning there's this delightful touch the fluorescent lights pop on one by one with the last one hesitating a bit flickering for just a moment it feels like the ship has a personality of its own it's not really the sterile cgi perfect interiors that we're used to seeing in other sci-fi but on the other hand it does have you know 40 years later now we're looking back at it It has almost a steampunk effect. Those clacky keyboards with toggle switches everywhere and those CRT monitors with crude graphics and green blocky text. And the wonderful sound of that tape drive clatter. You know, whenever the machines go on, you hear that whirring and mechanical noise. I also think it's it's a striking introduction to the film because apparently there's no dialogue for the first 10 minutes of the film. It's just beautiful scenes. But your attention attention is totally wrapped, right? It is. And it's so fun in older sci-fi movies like this to see this vision of the future what they thought things were going to be like one thing william gibson the sci-fi author talked about once was how no none of the the classic sci-fi authors saw cell phones coming Mm. right all these stories would be so different because you know now we have these little supercomputers that nobody predicted we would have where we can contact any person on the face of the planet at any time and he he talked about cell phones, but there's one thing I always think of, and it's really weird that I do, but I just do, and it really struck me watching this movie again. Another thing that no sci-fi authors or you know filmmakers seem to have been able to predict that I feel like definitely we would have seen here is post-it notes. <laughs> I feel like they're so... That's a great point. They're everywhere now, and especially on a ship like this that's very lived in and industrial. I feel like they would have little sticky notes 
stuck all over the place, but there is not, this movie predates post-it notes, uh, and there's not a single note to be seen. And it's very weird, but that's just where my brain goes. I like that. They did not anticipate post-it notes, but you're right. They would have been everywhere. Little scribbling things, passwords stuck everywhere, right? Oh, for sure. When we first see the alien ship, it is magnificent. It almost looks biological, and I think that's what makes it so clever. It's beautiful and horrible and confusing and feels organic. And then we pan to the space jockey, and 40-plus years later, it's still a sight to behold. It really is. It's still so unique. It's like nothing else. And this part of the movie where they're on the alien ship, and they find the jockey, as they call him, the giant alien that's driving this ship, which is, you know, very much very, very much Giger's biomechanical sort of style, his aesthetic, where you can't tell entirely where this alien creature's body ends and the ship itself begins. It really freaked me out as a kid because it was so uh, alien, so unlike anything else we had seen. As I've said many times on the show, I've always loved horror movies my entire life. Saw We both saw horror movies at a really young age, like probably way too young. But... You know, this was one of the ones that stuck out to me as as one that was really genuinely terrifying. And that was largely because of this scene, this giant alien space pilot thing that we see was like my brain couldn't make sense of it. Like I wasn't scared of the alien alien, like the main xenomorph monster that's running around killing everybody. Like, I, if anything, I thought he was cool. But this thing was... It was massive, and it just really, really freaked me out as a kid. I guess 20th Century Fox was not, uh, they didn't want to keep this scene in because it was a huge expense, no pun intended, literally a huge expense, this giant alien figure that they built for, you know, just this one scene that kind of sets things up, but they, they insisted on keeping it in, and it's a great scene, and it's also a great example of how this movie is just a masterclass in practical special effects. This thing was very big. The prop, the set piece of this alien jockey was very big, but Ridley Scott wanted it to look even bigger. So what do you do when you can't make your alien any bigger? You make your human astronauts smaller. In this scene, and I believe the scene where they're walking around the exterior of the alien ship, is not the actors from the movie in the suits. It is kids. It's Ridley Scott's kids, and I think a cameraman's kids in little mini versions of the spacesuits walking around. It's so simple and so smart. That is amazing. Right? It is so smart. The quote from Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, really applies here. Because they've made it so wild and so different, you really believe that it is something from either the far future or something truly alien to our way of thinking. This movie is truly a horror film. The slow burn, that palpable fear throughout the, you know, it's it's this feeling that the tension the entire time. They decode part of the message. It's not an SOS, right? When they get that beacon, it's more of a warning. And Tom Skerritt is so clinical when he sees it. Alien life form. Looks like it's been dead a long time. Fossilized. 
he's so clinical and so calm. Everybody's so calm that I was wondering when I when I was watching this again for the show, like you have they encountered alien life before? Is this the first time? Because everybody's real calm about it. Nobody's screaming. Nobody seems freaked out. They may not have encountered this particular kind of alien before, but it almost makes you think they they have seen something. Now, in the sequel in Aliens, they set up the fact that they have seen other aliens by that point. We get a couple references. There's uh, when they're getting sort of prepped for their mission. We have Hudson, Bill Paxton ask, is this going to be a stand-up fight or another bug hunt? So good. Which leads you to believe, you know, that they've fought. They've gone after some kind of aliens before. And they also, uh, in Aliens, talk about having sex with aliens. Do you remember this? They're like in the mess hall eating and talking. And uh, yeah, they're talking about aliens that they had sex with, which is, it's a little weird that they threw that in there. Hey, you sure wouldn't mind getting some more of that Arcturian boom tank. Remember that time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro, the one that you had was male. <laughs> it doesn't matter what it's Arcturian, bro. <laughs> we were definitely young when we saw this movie. It came out in 79, as we said. We were four. Now, I know we definitely didn't see it in the theater right when it came out, but I don't think it was too much later than that because, number one, like I said, I just know I was really young when I saw this. And number two, we both had that big alien toy that Kenner put out, this 18-inch tall glow-in-the-dark xenomorph toy, which now goes for uh, one that I saw that was not complete in the box. It didn't have all the pieces, just loose, was about $400. I think with everything, it goes for about $1,000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we can add that to the list of of toys uh, we could retire on if we still had. <laughs> and it's one of it was like that trend back then that we talked about in our toy episode of these just big standalone monster toys that you played with. It wasn't like Star Wars where you had the good guys and bad guys and acted out scenes from the movie with your little action figures. It was just a big monster. And of course, it had that little switch on the back of the head. Yeah. When you pressed it, the mouth opened and like the second set of teeth came out. Yeah. My sister-in-law, my brother and sister-in-law were living with us for a while when I had this toy. My sister-in-law was terrified of it. She she couldn't even be in the room with it. One night after she went to bed, I set it up at the kitchen table in the morning with a coffee cup and a cigarette sticking out of its little alien chompy mouth (laughs) waiting for. It was good stuff. The... Other thing from the movie besides that scene with the alien jockey in the ship that that did scare me was the face hugger, Mm. the thing that attaches to your face and lays the alien egg inside you. And that is first hinted at a little while before we see one when they show the space jockey and they're looking at him and he has this big hole in his torso that was ripped out from the inside. You got to love it. And the special effects on the face hugger are so good. It holds up completely today. Apparently, when they do the little dissection, when they're opening it up, it was made with fresh shellfish, four oysters, and a sheep kidney to recreate the internal organs. And it's perfect. I mean, again, this is a practical effect thing that it makes you feel queasy. It looks really biologic. And filming had to be done quickly, apparently, because the organic material was going bad under the studio lights. It was actually spoiling, which, again, probably makes the actors' you know responses. It is gross and stinky. They must have smelled so bad when they did that scene. They're so creepy looking. And I guess Dan O'Bannon, when he first envisioned the creature, he thought it was going to be green, but then he saw the prop. It has a sickly, fleshy color, and he thought it was perfect, and they left it. They were just so creepy and gross. Really messed me up as a kid. I mean, I didn't know, you know, like I said, we were little. I didn't know how actual human reproduction worked at that point. And I saw this thing laying eggs in people. Ugh. Barney, spoiler alert. 
That's how human reproduction works. I have been misinformed. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the effects on them were amazing. Again, these practical, amazing, smart, practical effects, right? You use, if you want to make something look squishy and like guts, get some squishy fish guts and use that. And another amazing moment of just ingenious practical effects when they first encounter the eggs, right? The big eggs where the face huggers are inside. A light is, sh- is shined on one of these eggs and it's kind of translucent. You can see the face hugger inside. And when the light goes on, it gives this amazingly organic and real like twitch, like moves. And that was just Ridley Scott's hands. I guess he put his hands in there like a little spidery shape and moved them perfectly when the light was on him. You just can't get simpler than that. And it's so effective. Let's talk about the chestburster scene. This is an absolutely iconic moment in the film. One of the things I noticed is that there is this powerful heartbeat sound throughout the entire scene that, quite literally, gets your heart pounding. I mean, this has to be on just about anybody's list of most iconic movie scenes ever. John Hurt, Kane is his name in the movie. He's been unconscious for a few days. The face hugger that was on him has fallen off and died. And he's back with the crew, sitting down in the mess hall for a meal. And he starts convulsing. And then the baby alien xenomorph busts out of his chest. I read a lot about the, the making of this scene and how it, how it all worked. And I guess Ridley Scott didn't tell the cast exactly what was going to happen. I guess the script just said that the creature emerges. And nobody knew exactly how it was going to happen. And Ridley Scott, in this great uh, interview, I think it was in Empire, he said... The reactions were going to be the most difficult thing. If an actor is just acting terrified, you can't get the genuine look of raw animal fear, which is kind of funny because at that point, you're like, nobody's acting. You're just scaring people and filming it. <laughs> In another interview, interview, Dan O'Bannon and Ridley Scott were talking about the whole process and Dan O'Bannon said, once the creature was rigged up, they stuffed the chest cavity full of organs from the butchers. Then they ran a couple of big hoses to pump out the stage blood during all this Ridley moved around, tending to the finest detail. I remember easily half an hour was spent with him draping this little piece of beef organ so it, it would hang just right out of the creature's mouth. So what they did apparently was they had an artificial chest that they screwed to the table and then John Hurt was underneath with his head like through the table so it looked like he, he was attached. When they bring him up to the set, everybody in the crew is wearing like raincoats and everything's in plastic and the cast is like, what is going on? And it must have just smelled horrible. And they had a bunch of cameras going. And because nobody knew exactly what was going on, the, the reaction that the reactions of the cast that they caught were genuine. Like people were getting sprayed with blood. They were screaming. Uh, you know, the little tagline of the movie is in space. No one can hear you scream. Well, ironically, in this scene, we hear a lot of screaming. <laughs> and it's all, it's all real. It's all genuine. It's so iconic is this scene that even the parody of it is iconic. In Spaceballs, if you remember, there's a scene. John Hurt himself sort of reprises his role. He's sitting around at a table and he goes, Oh, no. Not again. <laughs> and an alien busts out, does a little song and dance number. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my raccoon gal. Send me a kiss by wire. Baby, my heart. There's a scene when Brett is deep in the ship looking for Jonesy the cat. He stops in some sort of a water condenser unit. It's kind of a remarkable scene because it very much evokes the horror movie trope of someone taking a shower while the killer is coming. And we see these little droplets of water coming down and the lighting is very severe. 
One of the things I love as well is that the alien is shown so fleetingly and it works so well to keep that tension ratcheted up. I read something that said alien was summarized as like Jaws, but in space. This is something that we've talked about before, mostly with werewolves. Uh, we talk a lot about werewolves on this show. Even when we're doing a show that's not about werewolves. Here we are. I'm talking about werewolves. No, with Silver Bullet, we did the movie Silver Bullet, and we talked about how because the werewolf in that movie was kind of goofy looking, they definitely should have shown less of it. That would have helped. And even in American Werewolf in London, which is the opposite, it has like the best looking werewolf ever. Even in that, John Landis in an interview said he should have shown less of it just because it's always more effective. And that's even when the wolf is amazing looking. This alien was amazing looking. Um, and for the most part, they keep it, you know, off screen. I think it has a total of like four minutes of screen time in the whole movie. And you don't even see it. The first time you see it is is not until like an hour into the movie. Mm-hmm. Stan Winston, who worked with James Cameron on Terminator, and they worked together on Aliens. He was talking about the end of the first movie of Alien when you see, really get a good look at the alien kind of for the first time. It's the last scene in the movie, really, when Ripley, you know, blows it out of the airlock. He says, when you basically see the whole thing at the end of the movie, you went away kind of wishing you'd never seen that shot. It was disappointing, but there wasn't much they can do given the restrictions of the suit. And when you think about it, that is about as practical of an effect as you can get. Just a dude in a suit, and that's what this was. It was a latex suit sculpted by Giger himself, and it was apparently very hot, as you would imagine a big latex suit to be. And incredibly heavy with the with the head with all the jaw mechanics and stuff. The person inside the suit was a guy named Balaji Badejo. And at some point during the production of the movie, he was spotted in a pub. This like super lanky, seven foot tall dude. And they're like, yep, that's our alien. And they sent him to different classes to learn how to move like an alien. Like Tai Chi classes and movement classes and alien dance class or something <laughs> i think i signed up for that class once it was a alien dance class it was really weird he was really good i mean he was perfect he did an amazing job the fact that ash is an android and that is kept secret until the third act is also sort of brilliant even you know knowing the storyline and having seen this movie multiple times watching it again recently was it was kind of a shocking moment it was for sure and it's it's interesting that they chose to do that like why did they decide i mean it's not totally necessary for the story to have you know a a robot guy it was cool it was a cool thing for them to do and if for nothing else it gives us bishop in the next movie played by lance henriksen who's you know who's great who's a fantastic character and it's true there is that kind of redemption arc for the android who later saves the day yeah that's true well it is funny because the tech is remarkably non-advanced as we've said clacky keyboards and crt displays and then there's this weird paradox of having these crude computers but then a full-fledged replicant level android walking around you know it's unbelievable but you know what it works they keep it real and i think that's one of those things where less is more by keeping it a little bit mysterious who knows maybe they've they've forked ai or they're using kind of a bio AI for these androids special effects on ash you know he's all um white and milky and gooey inside apparently that is just milk that they use for all the white stuff that he's you know bleeding and barfing out and he does almost have like a biological look inside all of his guts when you see him when you know he goes nuts and he gets you know smashed up with the with the pipe or crowbar or whatever it is 
And there's this hilarious little bit of special effects where it's this, it's this cut that's really funny. They're setting him back up. Ripley's kind of plugging him back in and trying to get him to work so that she can ask, you know, what the hell's going on. And the cut between what is clearly just a rubber fake head on the table and somebody passes in front of the camera. Then all of a sudden it's Ian Holmes head sticking out of a hole in the table, you know, just all milky and gross. It's just uh, it looks pretty (laughs) bad, but you definitely have to cut up some slack. Everything else looks really, really good. One of my favorite quotes from Ash is, you still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? A perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. As we said, Ripley Scott was not asked back to do the sequel. James Cameron was hired to write a script because the studio loved his script for Terminator, which was in pre-production at this point. And they liked the, I guess, the little treatment he put together so much that they agreed to wait until Terminator was all done and wrapped up so that he could finish it, which is pretty impressive. It says a lot about how strong they thought his story was. Now, there have been talks of sequels before, and Sigourney Weaver kept turning them down. She only agreed after she read James Cameron's script. Fox tried to get James Cameron to write a version of the script that didn't include Ripley in case Sigourney Weaver just said no again, but he he refused. He said that this was basically her story and you can't really do it without her. And that totally gave her some leverage in terms of salary negotiations. She went from being paid $35,000 for Alien to one million for Aliens. It paid off. It definitely was a good investment. Uh, Best Actress was one of the seven Academy Award nominations this movie earned. Mm. This is a long movie, dude. It's like two and a half hours long, which is very rare for a movie back then. Unlike now, when that's like the minimum, I feel like. Have we <laughs> have we done our, our why are movies so long now rant? On this show, we've certainly had it with each other, but I don't know if we've ever had it on the show. I forget what it was. I watched a movie the other day, and it clocked in at a at a crisp ninety minutes, and I was like, "Oh my god, that was so refreshing!" When was the last <laughs> time you saw a modern movie that was under two hours long? Anyway, this one uses the time uses the time very very well. It does a great job of sort of reconnecting itself to the original, establishing reestablishing that world. That was set up in Alien and introducing a bunch of characters very well. We have the Marines. We have Hicks, played by Michael Bean, who worked with James Cameron on Terminator and apparently wasn't the first choice for this role. The original guy had to drop out. I love him. He is like my movie comfort food, (laughs) Michael Bean, whether he's in this or Terminator or he's the the army guy in the abyss who... (laughs) Remember, it goes, goes crazy from like uh, underwater sea madness, whatever it was. Yes, so good. <laughs> we have um, Hudson, played by the late, great Bill Paxton, who's hilarious. So many fantastic lines, a lot of which were improv, by the way, improvised. The knife scene where they're sitting down to eat and Bishop does the, the knife between the fingers thing on the table. Uh, apparently they didn't tell Bill Paxton that they were going to use his hand to do it. Oh my gosh. So his initial reaction where he's kind of surprised is uh, genuine, which is neat. 
We have Vasquez, played by Jeanette Goldstein, which, you know, the first time you see the credits and, and you see the name of the woman who plays Vasquez, you're like, huh, all right. <laughs> it's not, uh, I don't know if that's a casting choice they would make today. It's very interesting. I read an interview with her and she was talking about the fact that she was cast in that role and would she be cast today? And she said, you know what? I tell you the truth, I've never been cast or given the opportunity to audition for a short, freckle-faced Jewish girl who is half Russian and half Moroccan and Brazilian, so I don't think I'd work very much if that's all I was able to read for. What a great point. Yeah. She either wanted somebody for the role who was, you know, they were thinking like a bodybuilder, you know, they wanted a woman who was jacked to play this role, and they were happy to find an actress who happened to be into bodybuilding and super in super good shape. Instead of, you know, a bodybuilder who may not be the best actor. But she nailed it. She was she was awesome. We have Apone, the sergeant, played by Al Matthews, who, fun fact, apparently during the Vietnam War, he was the first black Marine to be promoted to the rank of sergeant. And he would later say in an interview that he got his part in Aliens, not due to his acting ability, but rather his military service record. He did such an awesome job that I have to imagine his experience as a sergeant was definitely channeled for this role because he was so believable. He was great. Another glorious day in the Corps. Day in the Marine Corps is like a day on the farm. Every meal is a banquet. Every paycheck a fortune. Every formation a parade. I love the Corps. We have Burke, like we said, the slimy corporate guy who was fantastic. This was before the show, his big show, Mad About You. So I don't know. I don't remember how well-known he was back then, but he was really good. He played... You know, at first he seemed like a nice guy, but he did that, you know, secret slime ball turn pretty perfectly. And then, like we said, we have Bishop, the android played by Lance Henriksen. And he, Jeanette Goldstein, and Bill Paxton would end up in a movie together after this called Near Dark, where they play like a, a family of vampires. And they wanted, for the roles, apparently they wanted a really close-knit family feel, and the, these three actors had just spent months together filming this movie, so it's kind of cool how it played into them getting cast uh, for another movie together. I've never seen that movie. It's really good. The score earned the movie another Oscar nomination, Scores by James Horner, who said the experience was terrible because he ended up having almost no time to actually compose the score. There were delays and stuff. So he had to compose it really quickly and then just run off onto, you know, whatever the next project was. And there were edits done to the movie after Horner already left the project. And James Cameron kind of chopped up Horner's score himself to match the edit of the movie, which understandably he was not super happy about. But they did end up working together again down the road on a couple of uh, couple of little projects, little movies called Titanic and Avatar. A couple of smaller pictures, more indie pictures, right? You may, you may or may not have heard of them. The elevator scene towards the end of the film, it's so funny, and it's such a play on the cliche of waiting for the elevator. So they're first they're waiting for the dang elevator as the mother alien is coming for them, and she's you know hitting that button, come on, come on, and then spectacularly you know they, they get they get in they get safely to the surface and you sort of take your your big sigh of relief you're like they made it <laughs> the other elevator dings 
and there she is. I mean, it's kind of hilarious. Like, I really found myself cracking up. Like, wait, really? She got in the elevator, this alien being, and knew how to go up to the surface, you know? But it's brilliant. This is a film with several false endings. You feel so happy when Ripley finally burns the ovipositor thing hanging from presumably the queen. Uh, and you feel so happy again when they finally get into the elevator. You feel like we did it. And then you feel so happy when they get picked up by the ship. You're like, whew, sweat off brow. But each time, you know, this allows for the glorious sequence where Ripley is in the power loader battling the queen. So it keeps building and building and building. Yeah. And the queen was amazing. She looked absolutely incredible. I guess James Cameron came up with the idea of how to build her and make her work and everything. He thought it could be just this giant thing sort of suspended from a crane. And you could have two guys, two stuntmen inside this thing moving the arms. Stan Winston was talking about it. He said, when Jim first came to me with this idea of putting two guys inside a giant alien queen suit, I thought, this man is out of his mind. Nothing like that had been done before to test the concept in three dimensions and full size, Stan Winston built what I guess the crew called the garbage bag queen, <laughs> which was just this foam core, like mock-up of the, of the alien queen skinned in garbage bags and trash bags and suspended from a crane in the studio parking lot. And he realized, holy cow, like we could do it. This is going to work. She looked amazing. She moves so well. And ended up working perfectly for that final showdown. And that final showdown is probably the best example of making good on Chekhov's gun, right? They showed us very early in the film that she is class two certified to use one of these loaders. And honestly, the scene is a bit of a throwaway. It, it actually, it, the beauty of it is that it actually is self-contained because remember that they say, um, you know, she goes, can I do anything? I don't know. Can you do anything? And she says, I can drive one of these things. So it's this wonderful moment where you kind of feel like, that was cool. But then here it is at the very end. She's using it skillfully to fight the big bad. This is an amazing and brilliant narrative. And I, I do feel like James Cameron is kind of a genius with this sort of uh, bringing everything together. Ripley using the power loader suit robot to fight the queen. is It might be the single best like setup and payoff in a movie that I've ever seen. I was trying to think of some other good ones. We have the Winchester, the rifle, the pub in Shaun of the Dead, right? A, a literal Chekhov's gun. <laughs> the air tanks in Jaws, they're, where they're on the boat and one gets knocked over and Richard Dreyfuss is like, careful, that's compressed air. And then they use that to blow up the shark with, right? The penis pump in Austin Powers. <laughs> that's a very important one. It just seems like a silly throwaway joke. And then he uses it, you know, at the at the uh End of the movie. Um, there are a lot of great ones, obviously. But this was the best payoff ever because you think you see the payoff. You think the scene is the payoff, right? Like you said, it's almost kind of a throwaway, but it is this really great character moment for Ripley. It's first mentioned early in the movie when Burke comes to visit Ripley and he says, like, you know, I know you're working on the loading dock because that's all you can get. And she's like, yeah, that's my job. Like, it's a good job. It's an honest job. Like, it's, and it shows that she, you know, wants to work, wants to help. And then again, we get to see that here where she's helping. She just wants to feel useful. She wants to be helpful. And we get this cool, funny little moment where it's unexpected that she knows how to work this big loader. And you think that's it. You think it's just this cool little character moment. You never think that this thing is going to show up later 
in the final showdown. Like nobody, there's no hint. Nobody is like, boy, one of those things would sure come in handy if a, a giant alien queen monster is chasing you. Am I right? <laughs> the loader itself is so cool. Like they did such an amazing job with that too. And the way that worked, I read, there was a stuntman puppeteer inside the suit itself, kind of like behind Sigourney Weaver, who was actually moving the limbs and the rest was just kind of held up with wires. The effect was so convincing, legend has it, that companies called 20th Century Fox hoping to get uh, a, a robot loader suit like for their, their business to like load things with. You know you've done a great job with special effects when people are trying to buy it. When you've got some guy from a loading dock calling you like, yeah, let me get one of them uh, forklift robots. <laughs> I got to load some stuff. <laughs> As we said, these are not the only two parts to the alien story. They're the only two we really care about. But after this, we had a bunch of sequels and prequels and stuff. There was Alien 3 in 1992. And I don't know if you remember this. The weekend it came out, we did a like a marathon. We watched In Your Basement on the big TV on Laserdisc, I believe. We watched Alien, Aliens, and then hopped in the car and flew to the theater and watched Alien 3. And we were very disappointed by it. <laughs> Aliens is a tough act to follow, I know, but it was still it's not very good. And it really kind of got not much better from there. We got some prequels, and we got Alien versus Predators movies, which should have been amazing, but were absolutely not. But these two movies, they work so well together. Like we said at the, at the beginning of the show, is two parts of a story. And as far as we're concerned, they are where this story ends. Before we wrap things up here on the show, Biggs, at the time of recording this, you recently celebrated a birthday. Tis true. I got you a little something, and I thought I would wait so we recorded the show to give it to you so we could share it with our dear listeners. Are you ready? Ready. I got you your very own McQuaid Arcade Movie Quiz. <laughs> Ba-da-da-da-da-da. Happy birthday. <laughs> Are you surprised? I am incredibly surprised and shocked and delighted. This is the part of the show where I scour the internet for a trivia quiz based on the movie that we're talking about here on the show. Now, I don't look at any of the questions. I just sort of confirm it's what we're looking for. And then we do the quiz together here in real time, all together for the first time. Uh, if you'd like to play along at home, this is from Twinfinite.net. Oh, and it says only true fans can get a perfect score in this Aliens trivia quiz. This is just the sequel. This is just about aliens. I was looking around for a quiz and I found one that was like a hundred questions about the aliens universe. And I was like, that sounds terrible. So we're not going to do that. That's for another show. Yeah. Yeah. Another show by somebody else. Um, okay. Are you ready? Ready. At the beginning of aliens, Ripley's escape shuttle is found. How many years has Ripley been in hypersleep for? 75 years, 57 years, 68 years, or 47 years? I think 57. Correct. Yes. During the meeting discussing the destruction of the Nostromo, the cost of the rather expensive piece of hardware is mentioned. This is when she's like in the boardroom with all the executives. How much was the M-Class Star Freighter worth? 42 million in adjusted dollars, 22 million in adjusted dollars, 32 million in adjusted dollars, 52 million adjusted dollars. This is all hilarious. I feel like 52 million is like a nice house now. So I don't know about 
I it's funny I remember the scene and I actually remember thinking exactly that and yeah. I like that they called it adjusted dollars because I was like right. wow it seems like it'd be more than 50 million but yeah. I can't boy they've really not given us a big range it would have been nice nope. if it said you know 100 billion or something <laughs> no. I would have gotten it <sighs> was it maybe 42 million 42 yes. million uh what year is alien set 2199 2158 2179 or 2297 I have no idea I feel like 2297 is too far in the future maybe 2199 2179 i, don't I think know. yeah i don't know i think 2179 that sounds right, right. 79 correct yes what is the name of the spaceship featured prominently in aliens sevastopol or riga Sulaco or narcissus i believe it's a Sulaco. yes 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 okay we are doing great uh when the colonial marines awaken from cryosleep which character says, they ain't paying us enough for this man? <laughs> Let me read that. Because I just made it sound like they're selling a man to someone and they're not getting paid enough for it. <laughs> they ain't paying us enough for this, comma, man, Vasquez, Hudson, Dietrich, or Drake. Now, man. Dietrich, I believe, was the other woman on the team. There was, I think there were three women, right? There was Vasquez, there was the pilot, and I think Dietrich was... The other like boots on the ground marine drake was the other guy with the big gun yes yes Ain't paying i feel like up. this is hudson right i can i can hear it in it Hudson's sounds voice. like it for sure one of his many many great lines oh oh man that is incorrect it was drake it was drake before the marines meet the xenomorphs for the first time gorman orders the team not to fire their weapons moments later a character says what the hell are we supposed to use man harsh language which Marine says this? Apone, Hudson, Frost, or Drake? I believe it's Frost. It's Frost. Nicely Frosty, done. they called him. Nicely done. In the first battle with the aliens, a Marine with a flamethrower is grabbed and picked up by a xenomorph. Which character is it? Drake, Frost, Hudson, Dietrich. Who has the flamethrower? It's not Hudson. I don't think Drake has a flamethrower. He's got his big gun, big crazy gun. I don't remember. Should we go for Dietrich? Let's try it. Correct. Yes. During the same conflict, a Marine shouts the iconic line, let's rock. Who says it? That's Vasquez, that's right? Because that's when right. she... Remember, they secretly kept the ammo she for the big crazy guns? magazines, exactly. Yep. Later in the same battle, a xenomorph explodes, showering a marine with acid, which character dies as a result of this. Uh, I think that's Drake. Drake gets splashed with the acid. Yes. Nice. What is the name of Newt's doll? Newt, the little girl. The name of her doll, Casey, Rebecca, Charlie, or Cassidy? Casey. I think you're right. Her name is Rebecca, right? The actress's name? Yeah. No, no, no. Her Newt's real name. Oh, her name. real name is Rebecca. Right, right. but I think she the says, doll's name yeah, is Casey. She goes, and she's like, nobody calls me Rebecca except my brother. So Ripley should have been like, so nobody calls you Rebecca. You mean? Because, oh, God. It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> Casey. Hey, hey, hey correct. Um, when Ripley gears up to go and rescue Newt near the end of Aliens, what equipment does she not take? Flamethrower, location tracker, pulse rifle, motion tracker. Well, we know she tapes. Amazing move. Tapes the flamethrower to the machine gun, to the pulse rifle. She doesn't take the motion tracker, right? Because we have those great scenes. Again, James Cameron does this great job of even when you have a bunch of badass, super well-armed Marines, he makes everybody terrified because there's a scene where Hudson is looking in the in the motion tracker and he's like, they're right under us, man. Like, it's so good. It's so brilliant. But they're I don't everywhere. think she has it. I think she, yeah, Such she just scene. has the watch tracker, I think, to find it. I think it. you're right. Maybe she didn't bring the motion tracker. Does yet. not take the motion tracker. Correct. Okay. Last question. What is the last thing Newt says to Ripley before going into hypersleep at the end of the movie? Sleep tight. Can I dream? 
Affirmative. Remember, she says that at one point. I don't remember why. Don't let the bed bugs bite. I think it's can I dream. You got yes. it. We got 10 out of 12 correct. Not bad for a human, it says. We got, <laughs> we got all these questions mostly right. Mostly. <laughs> and that's our happy birthday movie quiz. In space, no one can hear you scream. Unless you're in a spaceship being chased by a xenomorph. The slow burn of the first film yield perfectly to the ramped up wish fulfillment of Aliens, where we got to feel incredibly powerful and competent, right before getting our collective butts handed to us by an entire ship full of aliens. The themes about biologically perfect organisms that use us as hosts for their chest-bursting offspring still chills us to this day. Let us hope that if we ever do meet aliens, they will be closer to Spielberg's E.T. than these rat bastards. And on that note, stay limber.